I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Charles Tirrett, pros in effortless menswear, whether you need a casual weekend look or sharp tailoring. For the month of June, we're offering listeners 20% off with the code WISDOMPOD. You can use that either online or simply quote that in store. I'm Yaz Rana and with me today to discuss one of the great test matches in England is the magazine editor of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon, the managing editor of Wisdom.com, Ben Gardner, and the editor-in-chief, of Wizen Cricket Monthly, Phil Walker. But first, let's hear from Mark Butcher. Mark, that final day and final session, have you ever seen anything quite like it? <laughs> um, I don't think I have. No, I mean, it, I was down at pitch side um, during the tea break, uh, you know, and with Simon Dahl, and we were both kind of, you know, clanging nerves a little bit, just wondering which way it was going to go. It felt like the game was completely in the balance. Um, and then within four overs of the restart, it was over. I mean, it's just absolutely astonishing. Um, you know, you, you could you could argue that perhaps you know both Dooley and I thought the bet that, that New Zealand should have started with this with the off spinner um, at one end. Um, just you know, it, if you want if you're going to come out and kind of have a have a bit of a go and be and be hyper aggressive, there's a little bit more risk involved. You know, particularly um, the way he got Dokes out in the first innings. I know that Johnny can, you know, can take down spin and whatever. We just felt that change, a little bit of pace off maybe from one end. Because, uh, you know, as it turned out, it was absolutely, he was, Dooley was absolutely right. So if you leave it until they need less than 100, it's too late by then. You know, they, they might as well not be playing. So, um, but beyond that, I mean, I don't know what else the Kiwis could have done. It was just, it was utterly astonishing. Um, and, uh, you know, if that's, if that's the way they're going to play, we're going to see some epic games of cricket, aren't we? <laughs> They won't. They won't always go that way, but um, but they'll be good fun to watch. Obviously, the style of cricket is the most noticeable thing that's different under McCullum and Stokes. But you can only play that style of cricket if you've got players who can pull it off. And Johnny Bairstow is someone who I think he's 
arguably the best ODI opener ever. His record is ridiculous. Brilliant IPL record. He's got now he's got nine test hundreds. On Bairstow, that was one of the most special innings I think we've ever seen from an English batter. To to, to launch into an assault uh, and do that with such clarity and then to execute it perfectly as well is just a, just an astonishing innings. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, you, you think back to, to KP maybe in 2005, slightly different scenario. In fact, you know, KP... <laughs> KPs might be slightly more bonkers because uh, England were playing for a draw. But even so, um, you know, that you have to go back that far. I mean, you know, Ben's chase at, at heading the obviously springs to mind. Although, again, the scenario was, was very different. That was kind of, that was completely last ditch. Whereas this, um, you know, there were so many other ways England could have chased that down or, or not chased that down, I suppose. And, and I don't think anybody thought that that was what was going to happen. Not one person in the ground. Um, barring perhaps uh, <laughs> barring perhaps Johnny himself. Given Bairstow's record uh, in Test cricket, he's had a lot of success a few years ago and what he's done in white ball cricket. Will England rue how little they've eked out of him in Test cricket over the last four or five years? Or is it just how it goes sometimes? It's not always the management's fault if a player is not playing at their absolute peak. Yeah, not always. I mean, I, we, we had this argument ages ago, didn't we? You know, when, when we were trying to get you know, England were desperate to get Josh Butler in the side. They got him in the side, but had him as a specialist batsman at number seven. Um, Johnny was keeping wicket and batting at number five. Uh, you know, the, the, they made a massive mess. My, my my view was a little bit like yours, was always that a time when England were really struggling for high quality batsmen, Johnny was one of the best three we had, right? And I think Cookie might still have been playing then. So, you know, you had Root... Um, you had uh, you had Root, you had Stokes, and you had one other. It might have been Cookie. I'm not. I'm not. My timeline's a bit skewed. Um, and under those circumstances, we've got a load of wicketkeeper batters. You know, and everyone has their favourite, whether it be Johnny, whether it be Joss, whether it's now Ben Folks or whatever. But we ha- we we were overblessed in that department. We were underblessed in top five, top six department. So for me, the answer was always very, very straightforward. You, you tell Johnny, sorry, you're not keeping wicket anymore. We need your runs. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, if I'd been in charge, if I was king of the world, then this would have happened ages ago. Um, but, you know, well, I, I think another thing that, that bears, um, bears saying and, and perhaps bears repeating is that, you know, Johnny was a bit under the pump here. Uh, you know, Harry Brook banging the door down, smashing the door down. Ollie Pope then gets 100 at number three. So you kind of closed off... You know, there was another there was another batter who perhaps is, um, was trying to convince himself, let alone everybody else, that he, he deserved a spot in the lineup. Johnny's little been a little bit shaky, I suppose, or a little bit flaky, in fact, is what I would say. He kind of, you know, he'd come and, and play brilliant innings and then he'd go missing for long periods of time and then come back in. And of course, with Brooke in the form he's in, you know, the the the, the compelling argument from people would be, well, it's a new broom, we're gonna change, we're gonna change everything, get new guys in. I'm sorry, Johnny, your time has come and gone. So it's absolutely typical of him that he would do something like that in a scenario whereby people were looking to shut the door on him and now he has slammed the door shut on uh, on the idea that he won't be in this England side going forward. So um, just staggering. Uh, you know, he's not the only person that's done it, is he? You know, the, England have taken a lot of gambles. Ollie Pope at three, he's made 100. Um, Matt Potts' debut, he's he's... Bold superbly, he's been unbelievably mature and and looks uh, looks to be the real deal. They brought back Broad and Anderson, no no gamble there. They're just fantastic. Um, 
Joe deciding to go back down to number four, his best position, always said it, he's very happy, he, he does what he does there. Uh, Alex Lee's keeping his spot at the, at the beginning of the season after, you know, not not convincing everybody, although I think rewind to a few pods back, I, I, I kind of felt that he had the game for it. And that look, that's looking increasingly so. So there's only, you know, there's only two people really now who are, who are in the firing line, perhaps, when it comes to, um, to changes. And that's not going to happen at Headingley now. And that would be Zach Crawley and, um, and Jack Leach. And, and the more, and more Jack Leach bowls, the more I think he's bowling himself out of it, to be honest. But, um, you know, who knows? He'll probably take seven for it at Headingley now with the McCullum key, with the Baz Ben and, Baz ben and Bob effect. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought it was really interesting that on day four, when Leach wasn't going great, Stokes kept him on and he ended up getting the wicket of Conway. And I, and I know he didn't bowl brilliantly for the mm. rest of the day, but he really backed him. And then on day five, I think slightly surprisingly, he started with Leach. Mm. Um, just going back to Ollie Pope, you mentioned there, he, lo- he looks good when he bats on middle stump, doesn't he? <laughs> I mean, who, who'd, who'd have believed it? Who'd who'd have believed batting normally might be handy for a, for a kid with all that talent? Um, yeah, look, he he's still he's still battling away a little bit. I think you know he's there. Were, I was just building a little um, sort of technical uh, thing on Ollie in that second innings, and and of course he he got out, and it was you know it, it was too late, superfluous, because I, I can I know what he's trying to do. He's battling ever so hard to try and to try and keep his his right side, his right foot sort of anchored. Um, parallel to the crease so he doesn't sort of topple over and, and sort of walk into the drive or walk into the defensive shot he knows he's doing it he knows it's, a, it's an issue if the ball moves around a little bit and he's trying trying really hard to rectify it um, other than that you know the square cuts back the extra cover drives back he left the ball a lot better because amazingly if your head is on off stump you know where the off stump is um, you know and, and I couldn't have been happier for him um, and it's just extraordinary, really, isn't it? Because it was a, I think it was a massive gamble, you know, him going at three. Um, and with that, that bit of backing, um, people believing in him. And, and, you know, Stokes has said, if I'm going to captain the side, I want Pope. And, uh, you know, that gives you, that gives you plenty of confidence. Um, fabulous pitch. You know, if, you, if you're going to, if you're going to be trying to, trying to get yourself, um, get yourself into a team or, or convince a lot of other people that you deserve to be in a team, then you couldn't have wished for a better surface to do it on. And he's done it. Um, fabulous. We had a question from a listener called Billy, and it was directed to you. Uh, just a que- question for Butch, given the pitch and Crawley not getting runs, when was the time when you felt that you'd missed out? Uh, and what, what does that feel like? Did it annoy you or motivate you? Just interesting to know what it does to people when you yourself aren't scoring runs when the team is, is enjoying success. Um... Blimey, you know, it's a, it's a really good question, actually. I, I was I was always very sort of inward, inwardly focused with my game, so it kind of I, I wasn't bothered about pitches that weren't that great. I, I felt I was just as likely to score some on a on on something that was seaming around and swinging as I was on a flat one, you know. So I never felt like oh I've missed out because this pitch is so flat. But I, it would always be more a case of, um, you know. It would have been lovely to have contributed to have done something in 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 a special uh, a special win such as that, um, but you know the, you know the the issues 
the issues for Zach, I suppose, but moving away from the answer because I, I haven't got a very good one for it. You know, it, it didn't used to bother me missing out on flat ones because I thought I was again, I thought I was as likely to score some on ones that were doing a bit anyhow. It was just, can I get my my brain and my my game into the right sort of shape that. I can go out there and play the way that I know that I can. And and that for me is the issue for Zach at the moment is that his game I don't know whether he's got, you know, a lot of things in his head, he's, you know, thinking about various technical issues, um uh, whether he's doing a lot of work behind the scenes to try to fix them, whether or not he's just deciding to try and watch the ball and play naturally, I don't know. I'm not I'm not in touch. But um, you know, you're going to get a couple of good deliveries from bowlers like uh, Bolton Saudi as an opener. That's going to happen. Um the the issue I suppose for him is can can he find a way to be as imposing as he knows he can and I think at the moment he's he's he is gonna he needs to benefit as much from the sort of like that belief and that sort of um, wanting to sort of go go at the ball go at the bowler a little bit more as anybody else because he's what six foot four um, hits the ball as hard as anybody and at the moment just cannot get himself out of the crease you know he's very very stuck um, in the crease his weight is a little bit back. The bat is all, he's always got that issue with the bat coming slightly across the line of the ball, but at the minute he's kind of a sitting target because that positivity, that um, that red pill or the blue pill, I can't remember which way around it is in the Matrix, hasn't quite got through to him yet. But given the way that it's going, um, you know, you wouldn't bet against it happening at Heading that it'll be, you know, Crawley gets double hundred, Leach takes seven for England win three nil in two and a half days. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly wishful thinking. Just, just yeah. on more, more generally, how we're, we're two tests. I keep pinching myself. We're only two tests into the McCullum Stokes era, and things have changed completely. What, what do you make particularly on Stokes and how he carries himself in the field and the influence he has on individuals? I mean, I think it's fascinating to see how Lees and Folks are just completely different players to the ones we saw in the West Indies, two players who are reasonably early on in their test careers and they, they, they've they looked completely different um, yeah. in this series against New Zealand. Yeah, and that's not, that's not, um, that's not an illusion. That's, that's absolutely true. I think the whole, the whole team actually, they kind of, when you have somebody, when you have the guy in charge, is kind of like is is a bit of a you know he he could be he could be deemed as a bully by the opposition you know or somebody that's kind of ag- aggressive imposing is probably the right word scratch bully. Um, it makes everybody walk taller behind him. You know you kind of you, you feel as though ah well you know the, the our man in charge is kind of invincible that makes me invincible too. Um, so there is definitely an element of that. I think the way he captained the side in, on, in the third innings was really impressive, really impressive because I'm sitting, you know, again, you're sort of sitting there watching the game and you're kind of calling it in your head and you're thinking, what, what would I be doing in this situation? There was a particular moment and I think it was when Matt Henry was, had, had that partnership going with Mitchell and they had, you know, men back on the hook and all this kind of thing. And I'm sitting there thinking he, he's, he's not going to hit it out to, to deep square. He hasn't, he's not got the game for that. He he doesn't want to do that at all. So him being out there, which looks you know it's kind of kind of semi aggressive, but it's also a run saving position, stopped him from thinking about trying to get on get a bat on a ball, you know, get a bat on the short ball. He was quite happy getting out of the way. And as this is going through my head, that you know I I say it to I can't remember who was on who was on comms, and funnily enough, Ben does exactly that. He brings the guy up. They they go to you know they give him they basically say well if you want to have a hook at it. There you go. Have a go at it. And the very next ball, he you know he has a he has a horrible flap. He gets he gets leg side of it. Tries to hit it offside. 
top edge through to the keeper. And it, that sort of that sort of thinking, that sort of um, making a decision from an aggressive point of view, looking at the batter and saying, he's not very good, he can't do this, so I'm going to give him the opportunity to and see what happens, is something that was missing under, under Joe a lot. You know, it, it was always kind of you would give he would give people more credit than they deserved as a captain, and therefore, you know, you would you wouldn't what you wouldn't make aggressive movements um, that might end up um, paying dividends in terms of, in terms of wickets with the pots that you know leaving leaving the field up when Bracewell was smashing it, you know, all that kind of thing. There were there were lots of there were lots of really good, really aggressive. Um, you know, to, they're, they're slight punts, I suppose, but the the, the odds are always slightly in your favour with those. Um, and he wasn't afraid to take them. Fabulous. On the, on the Henry field change, I think it was actually Folks who suggested it to Stokes. And I think yeah. that in itself is quite revealing that you've got a guy who's, you know, he's only playing his second home test match. He's not been around the team for a long time. Mm. He's the one who feels confident enough to go to the captain to make a suggestion that is completely in keeping with how the team wants to play. And it's, it's, yeah. it's, 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 going, it's, going, it's almost going too well. Almost going too well. I mean, yeah, so uh, Potts would do the same thing. He'd stand at the end of his mark and move, move the fielders around. There, there was a moment, actually, I think there was a moment where Stuart wanted a, Stuart wanted a field change and it was a slightly defensive one and Ben, and ben <laughs> just waved him off, you know. So, you know, and that's all part of being a captain, isn't it? You kind of, you, you, the, the great thing about it is, is that you give, you give everybody the responsibility to, to take calls and make calls. But at the end of it all, it, it's, your, it's you that, that says yes or no. Um, at the end of the day, and and the players seem to, of, of course, it's going to be more difficult times. I mean, they you know they could very easily have have, have lost that lost the first test. Um, they could very easily could very easily have lost this one too. I mean, it's just utterly epic. You know, I thought that thirty five run partnership between Bolt and um, and Mitchell at the end. I thought that I thought that had stuffed it basically. I thought you know kind of oh man, it's a little bit too many. The rate's gone up a bit too high. You end up four down. For once, with one sixty left at, at, at tea time, and and the clocks against you, and you're just thinking, man, ah, oh, such a shame because that 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 crit viz or the wind viz thing kept you know kept having the draw in, and I kept I looking at it on day four, thinking, no, the draw's way out, it's not happening, it's not happening, but at tea time you're thinking, ah, oh, bugger, the draw's back in. <laughs> oh no, do it with twenty two overs to spare. <laughs> yeah, and we have got four more test matches this summer uh, for the men to to look forward to as well. So you're you're off for a week in uh, Amsterdam. I'm going to Amsterdam for the three one dayers, and then I get back on the, I get back after the on the night of the third one, and then go straight to Headingley for the for the last Test match. So, I'm going to be on the road for a bit, which is nice, and the weather's lovely. So, I mean, what what could possibly go wrong? Absolutely. Well, cheers for your time, Butch, and we'll catch you next week. I'm Alex Rodriguez, and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Johnny Bairstow hitting 93 or 43 after tee. England scored 133 runs in one hour and won by five wickets after conceding 553 in the first innings. Phil, have you managed to get your, your head round what, what happened? Uh, yes, up to a point, but no when you spell out those numbers in those terms. <laughs> they are numbers that have no place in, in my 
in what's left of my brain. Yeah, I still struggle to compute those those numbers. And yet when you were watching it, there was a weird sort of inevitability about it. Uh, and it was funny as well listening to the to the the commentators as well talking across days four and five that they almost sensed that there was an inevitability to it as well not quite as you know mind-blowingly spectacular as it was at the the death but there was that sense that England had a clear-minded way of going about this test match New Zealand had kind of helped them by scoring fast in the first place and that England weren't going to take any other option they were either going to go down in a blaze of glory, or, or they were going to rewrite the record books. And as it was, uh, we got to tea, and it didn't even feel on a knife edge at tea either, I don't think, really. I do not think. No, I didn't. I genuinely didn't. I thought that England were comfortably in, in position uh, to at least make a proper run at it. Um, albeit two wickets from disaster, I get all of that for sure, but there was there was a sway in the game there was a weird energy about that those last two days, I think. New Zealand almost folded into that narrative. The shots that they played, two runouts on day four, it was almost like they they couldn't really keep keep the, the wolf from the door. And and coming into that final day, even when England lost two or three up top, and they were what, ninety for four, I think, there wasn't any consideration that they were going to approach it in any other way. Uh and sometimes with sport there is that sway of of preordination of of some kind of version of destiny if you like and uh and the longer that I say the longer the more minutes that ticked by across that evening session the more the more it became a sort of procession a, a, a kind of festival rather than a sporting contest uh Stokes's word in Bairstow's shell like don't hit it down I mean that'll go down in legend when as an England captain in Test cricket, in the grand old game, the grand old institution of Test cricket, ever said to one of his players, "Whatever you do, make sure you keep hitting it upwards." <laughs> that in, that just caps, encapsulates this whole crazed shift in the last two or three weeks. How much do you think all the chat across the whole Test match was about how if England had to chase a big score, they were just going to go for it? And how much do you think that played in part a part in? New Zealand not really having any control of the last two days. I mean, it, you're right. New Zealand batted quite strangely. And it was almost like they weren't really sure what to do. And then in that final session, when England came out, they just didn't know what to do either. How much do you think the way in which England have almost talked themselves up has played a part in, in what ended up happening on the pitch? I think hugely. And as Phil said, New Zealand played their part in that through some great cricket, through some pretty poor cricket on, on day four. Uh, it felt throughout the game it felt almost like the, the two teams had sat down before the start of the game and said how are we going to make this the most compelling test match that we possibly can even throwing in a couple of runouts at the end there and it completely played out in their way but just to, on back to Phil's point on that final session I thought the amazing thing about it was even though it was so completely and utterly one-sided right up until the last kind of bit of play there was still such jeopardy on it because every time Bairstow hit it up in the air and I, I was finding it hard to track the ball. I think the players were at Trent Bridge as well. A couple of times I thought he was gone and if he had gone at that point, then New Zealand were right back in the game. Bolt was still bowling well even though he was going for a, going for a few at that stage. So that's why it was so compelling. If, if England were just marching to victory and, and, and that was clear from the start of the day, it wouldn't have been anywhere near as thrilling to see Bairstow play that knock but because there was such an edge to it all the way through. I, I, I hear that but the... And, and I don't disagree with that. There was 
it, it, there was a kind of kamikaze element to Bear Stowe's innings, which made it all the more thrilling. But at the other end was as ice cold a, a run chase orchestrator as you can get, really. And Stokes has done it a thousand times in all kinds of different formats of cricket. We've obviously seen him, you know, do do what he did at Headingley two years ago. He was always, I felt, going to be there or thereabouts at the end. And he, and he didn't make one slight error at that, any point. Certainly, Stokes looked, he had that kind of invincibility around yeah. him that he does, but he might have had no one left to bat with. That, that was still a realistic possibility yeah. right up until the last. I, I, I hear that. And obviously, it's all theoretical. But the way that he, he went about his, his innings in the, the early part of the afternoon, albeit, I think he was on one when he ran down the pitch and stuck one in the confectionery stall and out again off Southie. But still, there was... As you wrote very nicely last night, yes, there was there was clear-eyed logic and kind of mental coherence to what Stokes was doing, and and my instinct watching it um, and just enjoying it, but my reading of it was that if Bearstow flailed away and got out for sixty or seventy, then Stokes would have still been there. I would have still backed him to be there, one hundred and ten, one hundred and twenty, not out at the death. And all he would have needed is somebody to stick with him. It might not have happened, but I don't think it would have been because he would have made a mistake. I thought of all the things we've seen in this test match, um, alongside you know, the kind of quiet emergence of Alex Lees, which is obviously a big positive, and the way that Ben Folks has kept and batted has been excellent for the last two or three weeks. That's really important for the team. But I think the way that Stokes has just slipped into this role now of kind of cold-eyed, iconic figure who knows who knows his way around every single scenario of a, of a cricket match. I think that, that bodes immensely positively for England going forward. And while he is now at the helm, slipping into it perfectly, uh, you, you suddenly start to think about the limitlessness of the possibilities rather than the, the paucity of the possibilities, which is how, where we've been stuck for the last two years. I think there's, there's a cricket point made as well about that third innings for New Zealand, which in a way was the decisive one of the game. I mean, it's easy to look at that last session and say that, you know, that was obviously ridiculous, but that was the real unimportance. That was the thing that allowed him to have a chance. And you do see not, obviously these high scoring games don't end up in finishes that often, but when they do, it feels like it's the team who bats third, who has the most... Uh, who has the, has the trickiest task in a way. Like, it's a really difficult thing to judge, especially when the pitch isn't getting any worse as it was in that game. Like, you have no idea what's going to be a realistic chaseable total. I mean, England could have chased 302 sessions. So, so, and so New Zealand, they're stuck between that thing of like, okay, we need, to, we need to win this if we want to win the series. So we need to go quite hard. But also, actually, what even is a good total? Do we need to dangle a carrot or are they going to shut up shop? They've said they're going to do this, is, is, but if we give them too much, it's actually going to be unrealistic. And then, that, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're halfway down the pitch and the other guy's not come and then you run out sort of thing. Uh, that is, it's a really hard thing to judge. And I think there was a, a reason out of criticism, I think, of Ben Stokes choosing to bowl first. Not criticism, but people saying like that was the wrong choice. It was the attacking choice, I guess. But um, well, know, Tom Leighton said he'd, he'd, he'd have bowled first. Exactly, and I think Nasser yeah. Hussain before the game said he'd have bowled first. Yeah, but there is an argument if you think the pitch is a belter and you don't think it's going to get worse for actually bowling first being the right thing to do. If you think it's going to be as good for batting on day two, three, four, as it is on day one, then choose to bowl first, back yourself to get up to whatever they do, and then they're going to be the team on pressure because actually they're the team that has the hardest route to victory at that point. There, there was also some you know, concern that, that the, the fields on day one were too attacking and New Zealand were scoring too quickly. And it, it, 
did feel a bit like that at times and you could get the sense that Anderson abroad were getting a little bit antsy that they were going for quite a few runs particularly broad but actually in the end the speed with which New Zealand scored benefited England <laughs> I'm not saying that was part of the Stokes yeah. master plan but it just opened up the game was it 20 boundaries in the first session I, I, I was in a I was in a hot tub in uh, uh, in Surrey with my uncle Glenn on Saturday afternoon nice. and this was when New Zealand were about uh, 450 for five or whatever it was. Uh, no, they'd come up to 500 and I looked at the odds and England were six to one to win the game. And I said to him, have a tinkle on that because they've scored so fast and the pitch is so flat. And as Ben says, there was uh, positivity in the, the idea of bowling first. Uh, and I said, look, if England get, get up to parity, then it becomes a one-innings game across two, two, two days and then, or a day and a half, and then they're in the box seat because they've got a chase on a pitch that doesn't really break down. And although New Zealand have a good youngish spinner, he's still only two years into actually bowling spin in his life. So have a look at it, lump on. And then we spoke about Brexit and, and then, then that was that. All the way through, there was a sense that England could do it, but there was almost a kind of... <laughs> breathtaking naivety about how badly England have batted for so long. It's like, well, how can this side pull off that? But actually... It's the madness of leadership, isn't it? It's, don't you think so much of it comes down to... Well, Pope, to, Pope in a nutshell, sums that up, right? The way, yeah. the way he's played, the way he's now playing. So much of that, and he's admitted as much himself, is the way he's been talked about by Stokes, by McCullum, being given that responsibility at, at number three, which we've all had... I mean, I, I was keen to see it happen, but I wasn't necessarily sure it was the right time to do it. Um, but they've absolutely nailed that one. And, and he looks like he's enjoying himself. And that was before he got to 100 as well. That wasn't just when he got there, he freed himself up. I think the way he, he played in that first innings was, was just a complete breath of fresh air from what we've seen. On the number of collapses England have had, like we equate playing cricket aggressively as, as that not being cautious. England have tried to bat cautiously in the past and it just doesn't work. They also and tried the, to bat aggressively before. That's true. And it also didn't but it, work. But it worked <laughs> slightly better. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> um, and I do think that with the players England have, and you know, Ben asked Johnny Bairstow finally coming good again, how satisfying is this for you all personally? He is such a good white ball cricketer. He's somebody who not that long ago was the best wicketkeeper bat in the world. He's now scored three test hundreds in 2022. I was looking through all his international hundreds yesterday. So he scored 20 international hundreds now, which is <laughs> extremely good. Uh, 11 of them have come at a strike rate that's faster than 100. All of his test hundreds have been st struck at a strike rate above 50. This is a guy who likes playing cricket on the front foot. And you can now create an environment where that is not only acceptable, but that's actually what England want. It's, am it's amazing for England having... That was Bairstow's first test hundred at number five. And you should think for a guy who's that talented, number five should be his position. And I think that could be absolutely enormous for England if, if they get the best out of Besto at number five. I think he'd have played at Headingley whatever happened yesterday. But this was a guy who was probably three low scores away from being dropped because just the pressure that Harry Brook is putting on. So to play it in those circumstances, in a way it's more incredible. In a way it's not more incredible because that's just the way Besto does it. We know that's when he's at his best. McCullum is exactly the coach for the players. England have basically uh which is I mean I don't think his style would work everywhere and but uh, yeah I, th I think that there is one there is maybe I don't know if it's caution exactly but it is possible to you know to think that absolutely everything is fixed and there will be times when England try and do this and it doesn't work and I think that days like yesterday should justify that in a way but I 
think that like say with like Pope at three, uh, it's easy to say you know he's got a hundred there, big tick. But then we've also been saying like these were a flat wicket, easy conditions. He will face harder technical challenge at number three, and we kind of we've seen in counter cricket that he can make big hundreds on you know flatter pitches. That the question will be, can he survive that technical challenge in uh, a position where he has you know rarely batted? before I guess you know even in the West Indies England were making 500 very quickly now they've managed to do that and win a game of cricket which makes a big difference but it's it's it's, it's a weird one because you can sort of see that you know with the players they had and uh, some of the signs were kind of there and yet it also feels completely kind of alien and also it feels like everything is rosy and actually you can also sort of say like well is this team going to be able to you know do this in all conditions or when it's a bit tougher to bat and that sort of thing it's a, it's a yeah do you, do you think that McCullum could change Test cricket like he basically changed ODI cricket? I mean, if you go back to McCullum's final Test match, New Zealand were 32 for three off 19.4 overs when he came into bat, and then he scored 145 off 79 against an extremely good Australia attack. With the skill set that modern players have these days, is McCullum going to bring in a shift that other teams follow in the same way that, that kind of did in, in white ball cricket? I think it's very possible. I mean, that's certainly exactly what Stokes was talking up yesterday he said the sky's the limit and we could push even further than that I mean <laughs> I thought it was interesting how calm was Stokes Stokes was after the Lord's test win incredibly calm I thought god this is going to be the new Stokes the new captain and yesterday he just he couldn't keep it in nor, nor should he have done um I suppose yesterday the conditions were perfect for this to to come about this was a, a exceptionally good day five test wicket Jameson was out injured uh, you know, the weather was fantastic. The crowd were in. It was all the conditions were in their favour, and I don't think that necessarily means they're going to do it everywhere. And <laughs> and nor should they. And there's we've had a few comments on on Twitter and a couple of emails come through of people concerned about the sustainability of this. Um, but I think I think just just enjoy what happened yesterday. And the, the, one, the, one, the, these these are deeply scarred long-term England Test cricket fans and, and we have to respect that place so because that's even more reason to enjoy it when it comes about but I think the, the point is one of them specifically said Test cricket is all about playing the, to the conditions and I think England did that absolutely perfectly yesterday I think they realized it was on and they went for it um, you know if it hadn't come off the conversation would be very different but they would still be heading heading to Headingley one all with the Test to play in a series still to win it, it, it wasn't all or nothing yesterday I think what McCullum brought to New Zealand cricket, and it's taken him two weeks to 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 flip it round in in English cricket, is a devotion to the fun of the game and the beauty and the value of the game, but not to love it to death, not to see it, see in it the the deep answers to the universe or anything like that. To treat it as a game, an, an important game but a game. And in our culture in England, we struggle with that. A cursory look across social media when when anything's happened, generally bad with England, test cricket in the last couple of years, but even when things are good, there's also that kind of innate sort of joylessness around it because we know the, the how painful it can be and we know how important it is to us, how tied it is to our identity. As cricket fans in England, if you're a cricket fan in England, you are hopelessly devoted to, almost to an unhealthy degree to the the sanctity the sacredness of the five-day game McCullum has got no truck with that nonsense that sort of pompous bollocks he's not interested in that he wants 
his teams to win and he wants his teams to express themselves, but he's not going to love this thing to death. And I think that kind of philosophical liberating approach is absolutely essential to, to, to getting these players, these kind of slightly peculiar outlying players, many of whom are caught between these two cultures and certainly caught between the old and the new. I mean, this test match was simultaneously an old-fashioned test match and the most crazy futuristic test match all at once. And I think McCullum sort of straddles that, that cultural divide really, really well. And of course, he won't give a toss about bringing people with him. He won't give a toss about history and conventions and origin stories. He won't give a shit. He will just say to them, go out there and be yourself. And then when you've dealt, when you've deepened as far as you can go into yourself see how much further you can go see what you can bring out of yourself that you've not yet done as a professional cricketer already it's happening Joe Root fourth morning when he's already 150 odd not out whatever he's he's he, first he gives an interview when he's not out which is rare secondly he says I'm interested in taking test match batting to another plane I'm interested in bringing all of the things that I've learned all the things that are culturally now a part of modern cricket into my test match game and combining all of these these new ideas so it coalesces into being the best player in the world. He doesn't have to, by the way, because he already is. But if that's how he wants to play it, and then fit 20 minutes later, he reverse, reverse laps or whatever the term is, Southie over, over, you know, short, over third, third man for, for six. So, so already there is that cultural shift and it's happened madly it's happened pretty much overnight i don't want to put a damper or anything it, it, it might be slightly early to suggest that you know england and brendan mccullum about to revolutionize and redefine test cricket as we know it i mean you know two wins from two great well I just, sorry just on that the most amazing test last year the the rishab pant stuff in brisbane yeah which played was before, before but but my, my, that's my point was that that's before brendan mccullum took over england and then, and then there were shades of the gabba in this but I think that shows that that is a, a more general trend I mean obviously Brendan McCullum has played a part in it I don't know if you can give him full credit for what happened at the Gabba and yesterday as you've as everyone said is like it was a unique set of circumstances as well as England playing in that particular way obviously fourth in his targets the dial has shifted dramatically and that's not down to Brendan McCullum obviously it's not but what has shifted is England's relish and appetite for going for it you know, the, the obvious comparison is 12 months ago at Lords and that, that horror show in the, on the final afternoon when they, they didn't back themselves to chase two and a half and over or whatever it was. Um, it's a crude comparison, but it none, nonetheless serves a point at this, at this stage. Brendan McCullum has not revolutionised the game because the game was, was evolving constantly anyway. And the Rishabh Pant comparison is very good. But then it also flows back into many, many years ago. You know, South Africa chased 400 at Perth and, and these kinds of scores have been going up and up in, in the fourth innings. But what has changed is that England just, England's new, new collective just didn't consider for a second playing it down. Keep playing it up. Keep going up. Don't you dare think about those three fielders uh, on the leg side boundary. Just don't even consider that. Just keep going over them and over them and over them. And that is the perfect metaphor for this new crazy time. And that's I, that's why I think the timing of McCullum's appointment is so important here because fair play to Rob Key, by the way. Fair play to Rob Key, but also uh, this, uh, there are huge similarities with the ODI white ball reset thing because similarly to England in that World Cup, they had to get so, so bad for people to realise that this had to change so dramatically. If they'd have got to maybe scrape to a court final there wouldn't have been I don't think that willingness to kind of tear up the scripts and go again similarly with this test side 
we have been so bad that there is this willingness to do it a different way. I'd, I'd think if McCullum had come in and England had a decent record, won most of their tests at home, lost most of them away, it would have been very difficult for him to come in and, and rewrite the whole thing. To be honest, they probably wouldn't have even appointed him in the first place. So this is it. It's, it's again the circumstances around us. And I thought, going right back to that first ODI under... Under, not first ODI under Morgan, but the first since the World Cup in 2015 at Edgebaston when England got went off like a train. But then I think they were like 220 for six. And it looked like they were going to be all out for 280. And everyone was like, well, they should, they should creep to 320. And they just kept going. They just kept going. Butler played an astonishing knock, scored a century. I think Rashid got a quick 60. They ended up getting 400. And you were kind of watching it sort of through your, through your fingers, thinking this is not how you play a 50 over innings. This is not how you do it. You're meant to just make sure you get as many as you can, certainly about all your overs. Remember everyone used to say that? Now everyone's like, what? <laughs> Why would you bother doing that? Uh, and I think it's the same with, with the test side now, that there is a willingness to see things through a fresh perspective, partly because we've seen such bad, bad results for so long. And, and it's the perfect scenario for him to come into. In England chased 299 yesterday in exactly 50 overs. And before 2015, they had chased 299 or more in ODIs twice. So that's a <laughs> good stat. That is that very good. good stat. Um, ben, just kind of taking a step back, how, how do you think that overall win and, and the best oh, knock kind of ranked to the, the, the great English innings and great English wins of the last 20 or so years? I mean, it's, it's just so hard to compare because it, it's like, uh, how do you compare that to, you know, Cook or Peterson defying like a, you know, a dust bowl? It's, it's like, I, th- I think it was the, the daringness of it and how quickly it turned from because I, I was with Joe feeling kind of tense at tea like wondering yeah a few quiet overs or uh, a wicket and do they shut up shop and how quickly it went from that to inevitable uh so I, I don't know I mean I, I can't, I'm not going to sit here and rank the top 10 or 15 and say it is therefore fourth uh but it, it was a, a, a pretty as much maybe top five I guess I don't know <laughs> well England have conceded in the match Maths, maths, the best part of 700 runs. Sorry, more and like 850, 830, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Loads of runs. Lots of runs. Loads of runs, maths. Uh, and they won the game with 20 overs to spare. I mean, how can that not rank as one of the all-time great, great test match wins? Also, look at the reactions to. of the players. Stokes says it's bigger for him than Headingley or the World Cup Did final. He? Yeah. Wow. yeah right. Besto yeah. says it's his, his best knock for England. And, and you know, he, he's played quite a few, what, 20 international hundreds. So yeah. whatever we made of it, look at what the players themselves felt about that victory. It says it all. I was thinking about what Stokes said about the win. And obviously, from a, from a fan point of view, you think like that is a bit of a, an over-exaggeration where, you know, when the theatre of those two games was absolutely extraordinary. But I do, I do see how this win from a captain's point of view, but also just from a team point of view, will be more satisfying because it doesn't feel like there was that much chance involved. Like, I'm, in a way, I can, like, I can imagine Ben Stokes almost waking up in a cold sweat thinking about the World Cup final head and anything like, God, what if Lyon had taken that ball? What if the ball hadn't deflected off my bat like that? And think that in some ways, Fortune played a massive part in those, which makes them all the more memorable as sporting occasions, but as a feat of achievement must, like, diminish them slightly for the individual. Not, you know, not that we would think that looking out, but for the personal point of view. Whereas this was just England's just outplaying a team who didn't deserve at all to be outplayed, basically, because of how they played in the game. There uh, are a lot, lot of drop catches, though. Yes. And, and the game is very, very different if, if both teams caught well. Although, felt roughly even in the end. Were they yeah, about as bad also, as each other? Also, also true, also true. But I think I agree with that level of performance. England didn't play very well in the World Cup final, really. Probably shouldn't have won it. Uh, again, Headingley was, was Stokes, wasn't it? Whereas this was an amazing team effort 
uh, from, you know, half a dozen people played a huge, huge part in winning that game for England. And Headingley didn't really feel like the start of anything either, I think. Um, and the World Cup final obviously felt like the end of something. Headingley, there were sort of whispers around, is this going to be Stokes' as ashes with it now 1-1? But I don't think anyone was too surprised when Australia won at Old Trafford and therefore retained it and then you know coach was already on the way out but was gone at the end of that and then you know it's been not not a huge amount to shout about since then and I don't think anyone was that surprised whereas this does feel like the start of something even if there will be you know it's not always going to be this good which is why it's worth enjoying this one. Phil on Pope that's his first home hundred I really like how for someone who just totally dominates county cricket test cricket is still so hard to crack do you think this hundred will, will will give him the confidence to to kind of play in the way he doesn't count the cricket. Well, he is a good player, um, and we've been consistent on that. Uh, it's been baffling to me that he's struggled so much after Port Elizabeth. That should have been the the watershed innings, and yeah, it seemed like the blip for a year or two. And yet, you know, demonstrably a good player. It, it's no great level of insight to say that. Um, he clearly has a, a kind of a, an, an issue with believing in himself. And I think cricketers do at pretty much all levels. I think there's an imposter syndrome that lurks inside every single cricketer until you properly crack it. And they talk about that in their, their sort of private moments or more, more open moments. Uh, Pope always, I'm not being wise after the event. I mean, we've always said it. Pope does have the game to make runs at test match level. Uh, what will happen now is is he will be given 10 test matches to see if that's his, his rightful position. Um, I thought it was it was encouraging to see how he played in the second innings in particular. You know, he got a real jaffer. I think he got 30-odd or whatever, but he played, he played well. He played with a bit of creativity. Uh, and look, I mean, overall, technically, you know, he's, he's clearly the finest of, of the, the young players coming through. Um, we spoke about this, Joe, didn't we, a few weeks ago. The fact that he personally went to Stokes and said, ah, oh, yeah, morning skip, who's batting three then? You know, it's, it's it's kind of vaultingly ambitious, but also the kind of thing that you want to hear, I think. You know, it shows that he was he was up for the scrap, that he'd, he'd also asked Surrey, you know, should I bat three? And he'd asked Stokes, should I bat three? And he said, in typical no-nonsense fashion, don't worry about it, mate. I'm going to play you anyway at three. Don't think Amla was budging as well. <laughs> no, no. As Amla said, it's just one more ball. Yeah. It's just one alone. more ball. Doesn't speak much of his own form, that. <laughs> no, no, that's another story. I think the, th- the thing with Pope, and I think most of us here have felt that there is that sense that once the the switch is flicked, that he might just go on a run, that he's got, he's got the game for that. We've seen it in county cricket. Now, I'm not saying he's going to, score kind of three centuries in the next five games but there is a sense that once he got there we're into something special with Crawley I don't get that at all I'm not saying he's not a good player he's clearly very talented but it still feels like we're very much that point where you might get a great knockout of him but that doesn't necessarily mean the next three or the next four or the next five tests are going to be consistently good but maybe for McCullum for Stokes that's kind of enough to work with for the time being they're happy to work on that potential as long as you see just enough flickers of it Mm. Um, Crawley will definitely play the next test and the India, India. weird weird one-off game he'll yeah. definitely play both of those I, mean, I, think, I think he should Burns, and then I think you look at it again after that yeah obviously Burns just got 100 for Surrey and is, is in good form and is, as England openers go has got a decent enough test record but it would seem very odd the way they're playing at the moment to drop Crawley and bring Burns in would feel quite counterintuitive to the whole the whole project the whole plan 
So I agree with Phil. I think Crawley will get at least two. And I think they might stick with him for longer than certainly a lot of people so on social media want him to. My, my worry is, and England actually have, uh, I was looking at this during the test match, they have like the most drastic youth policy when it comes to selecting batters in test cricket in the world by like, mm. the distance. New Zealand actually have the least. They, they pick very, very few young players. Like they've had eight innings, anyway, it doesn't matter, but eight innings played by batters on the age 27 in the last few years, whatever, which is... Uh, uh, I but, like that. But my... My worry is basically is that you look at Mitchell and Blundell, neither of whom have been players who've you know had amazing first class careers up until now. Blundell's was pretty good. Mitchell's was sort of mediocre, but came into form at the right time. One selection did well on debut at the age of I think twenty nine or thirty against England, uh, and is now in the form of his life. And you know, is is in his at this age is you know he's not going to be a ten year Test cricketer because he's already thirty one, and he's in the kind of fine with that. England are so desperate to find players who are going to define their team for the next 15 years. But actually, I do worry that if Crawley does fail three more times and gets dropped, that actually it is very hard to recall a guy like that because he will have played 23, 24 test matches, averaging 25, 26. And then, you know, people are going to say, like, why are you recalling that? We already know he's bad. And we don't because, you know, batters tend to peak around the age of 28 to 32. But England never pick, or very rarely pick those players at 28 to 32. And then even if they do... They don't back them. They back their young players when it seems like... But like even Pope, you couldn't say he has been ready because he hasn't succeeded up until this point. They pick young players, give them lots of chances when probably it's a bit too early for them. And then they say, oh, we've tried that and it didn't work. And then go on to the next young player. And then England are like basically never picking players in their peak unless they've somehow managed to break through that cycle, which doesn't seem to make a huge amount of sense to me. And so Crawley, I do think is... Is you know he's very talented. You know, you see the way he hits a cover drive. There's lots to lots to like there, and you kind of think like, why are we forcing him to be a Test cricketer right now, when that is going to be the detriment of him being a Test cricketer at age 28? We can say you know, oh, 24 Tests isn't that many, but it is a lot, and very it's not. Ve- very very few players. In one game, it's not when you when you're not playing very many Championship games. But he has because of the. Because of the He's not really. He's he's he's, he's a twenty three year old, and he's and he's, he's, no, he's, he's, tw- he's learning. He's learning on the job now. He may he may never never learn sufficiently well. But, but he doesn't score runs in county cricket when everyone else does. Test cricket, as you said ten minutes ago, is impossibly difficult, and good players take a take many good players take a long time for the for them to understand the alchemy of the game. Um. The reason why better judges than us four continue to back him is because they believe that he'll get there. We don't know yet. No one can sit around this table and say for sure that they know that he's not a test match player in the future. We just don't know but, that. But my point is that I, I think he could be a test match player by the time he's <coughs> 27. And by that time, he'll have played 25, 30 tests, be averaging 25. And then we'll think we've been there, tried him. He's not good enough. Sure, and that, that'll... sure. But, but if, a, if a player who has the components of his which make him quite unique in, in English cricket. If the player, if a play, if he is seven, eight, ten test matches away from nailing it, and I've said before, I would rather a player comes down the gears than goes up. Uh, I think it's better to have too many shots than not enough. I think it's easier to tighten up your defence than it is to work out how to play quick, short bowling, which is obviously his raison d'etre, right? Uh if that, if that period, if that Zach Crawley period is eight test matches from now, ten test matches from now, with his unique characteristics in the story of English cricket, then there's we talk about logic and daring 
and the clinch that they're now in, it makes logical, daring sense to stick with him and see where he ends up in seven to ten test matches. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know where that is, right? Yeah. I don't know where that is, but I'm trying to explain to myself why the statistics are secondary in the mind of Stokes and Root before him and now McCullum and so on and so on. I, could, I completely understand all of that. I just think... He also got two really good balls. He did. He did. I understand all of that, but also I just don't see it being any different to Jason Roy playing test cricket or Alex Hales playing test cricket. My point is... Um, less and and about- oh, sorry, and just also, go through the England top seven, they're playing this more daring form of cricket. Six of the top seven dominate county cricket. Absolute dominate county cricket this summer. Johnny, Be- uh, I remember Ed Smith saying a couple of years ago, the best three players in county cricket um, by some distance are Bairstow, Root and Pope. Stokes just hasn't played that much county cricket recently. Folks averages 100 this season in county cricket. Lee's average is about 100 this season in county cricket. These guys dominate it. Crawley plays in the team where he's the third best opener this season. On some flat pitches this year. That, there's yeah. been a lot of runs in Kent games and he didn't get any. And that, that is a problem, right? Mm. It's, we're talking about how difficult test cricket is to step up test cricket when you haven't got any runs on some flat decks against some very soft <laughs> balls in county cricket is, is a tricky one. But I think, I mean, you know. My, my point though is less about Crawley. And I think it's, it's more a question of do players need time in terms of test matches to come good or just time in terms of time by the time Crawley's played eight more test matches it I don't think it'll be even 2023 yet if he plays all of them and then he'll still he'll not be 25 and you're, you're saying at that point is the time to make a you know come to a judgment like that should be too early and yet he will also be an experienced test cricketer and I can also see why England would say we've tried it and he hasn't done it and then he'll have to do First, he'll have to do absolutely loads in country to get his first-class average up to a decent level, fine. But he'll have to do loads to convince them to go back to him when he should be nowhere near his peak. And it should be too early to, you know, write off a player. But that is what this selection policy runs the risk of, of burning out young players and burning through them before they get anywhere near their peak. And there is also the argument, I suppose, Michael Vaughan has made it, that you need to pluck players from county cricket before they get it says like entrenched in the system or something, which I sort of understand, but... This, what they're doing at the moment, clearly isn't working that well because the young players are struggling so much to establish themselves, even if, as Pope shows, you can go through a long period and then like still come good in some form. We talked about it a little bit earlier, but one of one of the effects of this new positive team environment and team philosophy is on two of the lesser established players in the squad in Ben Folks and Alex Lees both looked quite wooden in, in the Caribbean. Lee's sometimes was really struggling to hit it off the square. He was batting really slow. I think his strike rate was below 30 in that series. But he, looked, he was batting like Hayden yesterday and, and folks had a really good half-century on the day, days three and four. Yeah, I was a bit shocked by what I saw from Lee's in the Caribbean because that wasn't the player I, th- I thought he was. I, I think before he got picked, I said he, he would hopefully be a kind of Sibley-esque, but with some with a greater range of shots. And actually in the Caribbean, it looked like he had even fewer shots than Sibley. Um, the pitches obviously weren't great for batting on. He obviously enjoys pace on the ball. There wasn't any of that in the Caribbean. There was probably some nerves involved as well. He'd be an interesting person to speak to actually and, and reflect on that on that Caribbean tour and, and how he struggled. But yesterday's innings didn't come out of nowhere as well. He'd batted brilliantly in the first innings. Um, he'd also batted really well in the second innings at Lords as well. Um, he's clearly got a bit about him as a simplicity when he's not got his strange stance going on to his game, which is obviously quite appealing given the struggles that some of England's openers have had with some kind of idiosyncratic techniques. And yesterday I did, you know, very early days, of course, but yesterday I did think 
God, this guy looks like a test opener in a way I haven't really felt with uh, an England player for quite quite a while. Um, so that is hugely encouraging. And, and the role he played yesterday, obviously, and understandably, it's been overshadowed by Stokes and Bairstow. But that role shouldn't be underestimated. So to play as he did against a very good New Zealand team attack really opened the door to go for that victory. Um, so yeah, massive credit to him. And, and hopefully it's the start of something something more permanent than we've seen over the last few years. Mm. I think one thing we forget as well is that no young player will come through the system batting the way that Sibley or Leeds did when they get into test cricket. Like that, that like a young player who gets into counter cricket at the age of 15, 16 will be dominating the age group, will be scoring quickly, will be playing loads of shots. And then that gets almost like worked out of them, right? So actually it shouldn't be that surprising that Leeds has the ability to play shots. It's just the, how county cricket has cut somehow... It changes players. It forces him to answer these weird questions. That means he's batting outside off stump to left armers coming around the wicket or whatever it is. Uh, that like that means he's then doing these weird things. And it's and it that how he continues to go will almost be in a way a big. Obviously, Brendan McCullum can say to Ben to Johnny Bairstow, go out and smash it, and Bairstow be like doesn't need a second invitation. But if he can get players like that who have sort of their whole game's been faced around like how do I not get out? If he can get players like that to just take them back to first principles and say. Look, just remember, you used to be able to, you're, at one point you were a very sweet timer of the ball. You, you have these shots, you have the ability to do that. If you can get those players to actually believe that and to make those small adjustments to that, that will be like uh, the thing that I think defines how Kai England can go under him, I think. On, on New Zealand, Dow Mitchell had another amazing test match. He scored 100, Blundell scored 100. Trent Bolt, I thought, was brilliant with the ball. It's interesting that Mitchell's had a great series so far. Trent Bolt's had a really good series so far. And Johnny Berto's called the innings of the the summer. They were all playing the IPL a couple of weeks ago. Michael asks, a great result and delighted to see the way England are playing at the moment. However, spin is a major issue, as is our long tail. How do you address both issues? Is Moeen Ali the answer to both? Leach does not look up to the job. Is the length of the tail something we should worry about? One of the reasons why people don't want Moeen Ali to play Test cricket straight away is because he hasn't played much first-class cricket recently. Three of the best players in the series weren't playing any first-class cricket at all into the build-up of the series. Well, well I think in, in the case of Trent Bolt, he'll be he'll, he'll, his body will be feeling fine because he's bowled 24 balls every three or four days for the last two months. Um, so I don't think there's a massive ex- shift required when you're a new ball bowler, one as experienced and brilliant as him. I think Bairstow, you know, he failed twice at Lords, failed in the first innings here as well. And he played an IPL knock yesterday. Yeah, and he played <laughs> an IPL knock, yeah. Uh, Atherton said before Lords, um, not sure he'd have played him at Lords. Um, I said the same thing for what it's worth. Uh, and it might have been a complete coincidence that he happened to have not played any Red Bull cricket but for three knocks he, he was struggling and in in the fourth knock he broke a record and he did so playing in a very IPL-like manner. Um, clearly he's worth his place in the side and then some so that's not that's not an issue long term for sure. Uh, I think it's generally easier to, to flip from being a quick bowler uh, as opposed to being a batter I think in the case of Moeen Ali, to have not had a red ball in his hand and then to think that he can go out and play a test match, I think that's folly, personally. He's, I don't know if this actually stacks up, but my impression is when he's had breaks from the game, when he's had injuries, he struggles in the first test when he comes back, even first, second test with the ball. Maybe that's because he didn't grow up as a bowler. It wasn't a natural thing to him. He, he was obviously always a batter and then a batter who bowled and then a bowling all-rounder. So I would be concerned about just throwing him in without any 
county championship cricket. I don't think that's necessary on the cards anyway. It seems to be talking about Pakistan rather than this summer. But there is something, when you're watching that team, there is something hugely tantalising about getting Moen back in there. It obviously absolutely fits the ethos of what's going on. We've got the problematic tale that we talk about every single week on this podcast, which he would solve, uh, not only solve, but I mean, suddenly you've got the best number eight in the world. Uh, and there is still an argument that he's the best spinner in the country. Not not necessarily at this minute with the red ball, given the lack of practice, but there is still a strong argument that he is. When you look at his test record, when you look at Leach's struggles, we don't know with Parkinson yet. Um, yeah, I with can Mo- see Mo- why Mo- McCullum's texted him, certainly. With Moeen, yeah. it's his record in England that I think is uh, surprisingly good. It's not actually that much worse than Swans. Yeah, indeed. Uh, it's not beyond the realms that he could feature this summer against against South Africa. Uh, it's also probably not essential that he features this summer against South Africa. Uh, I think if England are going to win those test matches, they'll probably end up doing it other ways, albeit he does have a great record at home against South Africa, who's player of the year, player of the series a few years back. But again, coming back to the, the no-nonsense, common-sense thing, uh, obviously he'd be great in Pakistan. And whether he's played any Red Bull cricket in New Road in July is kind of irrelevant to the build-up to a test series in October out in Pakistan where they'll play a warm-up game or two and they'll be training obviously every day with the red ball and they'll be playing intra-squad games with the red ball and all the rest of it. And then on those pitches where he does rag it and he will get a bit of purchase and also they're not going to be bombing him. All right, they've got some quicks, but we saw how placid those tracks were. I mean, Pat Cummins even had to work for his wickets. So him at eight changes the complexion of England's mid to lower order completely for sure. So... I don't have any any issues with him coming coming back into that side. I'm not sure it's necessary to really have that conversation at least now for for South Africa. I don't know where I stand on this, by the way, but I I did it did strike me that he's rather casually said, "Oh yeah, no, yeah, well, I had a chat to to McCullum, and yeah, no, I'd be open for to playing Test cricket again." And I, I just wonder how, say, Joe Root may hear that, you know, and and maybe look at himself in the mirror. Was I really such a monster? Was I really so? so unbearable for Moeen to think that he could possibly play test cricket under me but now with a phone call or two and a nudge in the ribs and now and now he's he's open to it again you know if I was Joe Root I'd be wondering hmm, I could have done with you here here and there and where did you go well we, we were discussing this yesterday and I and I can see how people could think that that this is Moeen picking and choosing I mean he, he sort of is I mean he he retired but he also just chose not to go to Australia when England I guess could have used him but I think there's a couple things here first is that we're in a new world now where you know the top level of English cricketers don't need to play test cricket yep. to have financial stability totally see so that. there is going to be a, like, a negotiation aspect I also think that particularly so like Moeen can say like well yeah I'm going to do this one or not this one and England kind of have to choose whether they're happy with that but they can't demand something from Moeen I think also he is a particular case partly because of how much he, he doesn't owe England anything because of how much he's been you know, messed around by them through his career. And also because of that, what happened at the end of 2019 when they took away his test central contract. I think that was kind of when England lost the right to say, if you want to play test cricket, you have to be available for everything because that central contract is kind of the thing that says you should be available for all tests. I think at that point, Moeen would justifiably have thought, okay, I'm going to kind of do things on, on my terms here. If they want to play test cricket, fine. I'll have that discussion. 
but I don't feel any sense of duty to do it week in, yeah, week out. Yeah, fair enough, yeah. As and I say, I don't really know where I stand on it. It just it struck me. And fun- fundamentally, people are allowed to change their mind, right? He, he was in one place and now he's in a different place. I, I think... Um, I did wonder what Jack Leach might have thought in the middle of a test match, reading about Mo and Ali unretiring himself. Probably not what he needed at that moment as he's kind of struggling himself. I suppose the conversation was more around Pakistan than now, but you know, it's probably a bit of a kick in the teeth to, to the Premier spinner. One thing I'll just say, and we've talked a lot about Leach, um, where he's at as a bowler at the moment on this podcast in the last few months. What I would say is that pretty much every team that's come to England in the last three, four years has really struggled, with the exception of Australia, really, has really struggled with like what to do with spin bowling. Yeah. Look at New Zealand, Adas Patel bowls two overs, that's him done for the series. Uh, well, he might come back in the next test, but that, that's him dropped. Uh, England have had three different frontline spinners in the last three years. Don Best in 2020, Moeen last year, Jack Leach now. Um, Shadab Khan played like one test match in 2020 and moved out teams don't really Ashwin know didn't Ashwin play didn't play exactly. he's the best spin in the world so it, it is just very difficult to be a spin bowler in England and I think uh, we probably harshly judge Moeen Ali's test career just purely as a bowler forget the batting because he was the first guy after Graham Swan and he did things in a very different way he was predominantly an attacking spinner rather than a contained one which England haven't really produced so yeah. I um, it, I'd say just very briefly um I can remember Panasar when he came into the side uh, and taller than Leach and a more energetic, aggressive. Uh, the revolutions he would put on the ball would be more more intense than, than Leach. And good players against Panasar, he got a lot of them out in those early years. In England, I'm talking. You know, he got Eunice Khan out. He got Inzamam out in that 06 series. He got good players out because... You'd have to wrestle the ball to the ground and there would be men around the bat. And sure, he dragged the odd one down, but you'd have to wrestle it to the ground uh, and you'd get bounce and you'd get fizz. Uh, Leach doesn't offer that to me from what I've seen. He puts it there rather than rips it there. And perhaps this is still a, a player developing. And if we allow a degree of leeway to say Crawley then we should allow a degree of leeway, leeway to, to a left arm spinner who's yeah. still discovering his game all of that for sure um, I would also say while I have my reservations about how far he can go uh, you can't ask for worse than to be bowling in early early season in at Lords, Trent Bridge and Headingley I mean they are three graveyards for finger spinners so I have no issue at all with Leach playing all summer uh, if, if they're going to pick a spinner, Leach being the spinner all summer, and then we have the conversation in September, I think. Mm. No, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. And also, I think with Leach, this is not, we are not seeing the best version of Leach at the moment. Crickviz posted quite a few stats about his bowling. He's bowling quicker, right? He's bowling quicker, he's bowling shorter. Uh, he just looks like a different bowler to the one who first got into the test. Yeah, now that was, sorry to over talk to you. That was really striking to me, and I watched him as closely as I could because I want him, I want to believe in him. I watched him as closely as I could, and the number of, deliveries that just blurred into one and you just bats, batters were just sitting there and blocking it and then when they wanted to come out of their box they were doing it without any fear or favor because there was no deviation in the air and so you can run down with confidence you can sweep with confidence uh there needs to be more variety in his bowling but again maybe he's just thinking i need to get a foot, foot in the door here and just one very, very quick thing to say on Moeen is just the fact that he wants to come back at all, um, having seen completely done with Test cricket at the end of last year. And I wonder if that 
means we should normalize especially in England, the idea of a, a sabbatical from the test game basically and you wonder how many careers could have been extended if the option wasn't just play absolutely every single test match or you know uh, or retire completely uh, and you know you talk about picking and choosing is picking and choosing worse than picking a player for a series he doesn't want to be playing in uh, like like you look at England don't have many batters that play beyond the age of 34 you cook is still turning out runs in county cricket what four or five years after he retired if he'd had that winter off and that had been completely fine and accepted and there'd been sort of no bones about it could he have ended up playing extended his career for another two years is that something you need to be pragmatic about mm. I think maybe Joe just on New Zealand um, obviously a big part of the, the run chase was Carl Jameson was injured but also Tim Southey had a had a pretty poor test match uncharacteristic so he had a really good year in test cricket in 2021 but just some of the shots Joe Root played against him, you kind of got the impression that he just didn't see Sally as the bowler that he normally is in Test cricket. He was slightly slow. He's lost a little bit of pace. I don't know if this is a permanent thing or just a temporary thing, but that's a really real concern for New Zealand given uh, Jameson's injury as well. Yeah, it, it definitely looked like England were targeting him, didn't it? Because he, well, he went over, over five and over for the Test match. Um, Southie's one of those players, he can look very hittable. Certainly, I, I think that in white ball cricket quite a lot, even though he's got a good record. Um, and yeah, I think England's sensed some vulnerability there, um, particularly when Jameson was injured as well. That really opened the door to properly having a go at him. And it was, yeah, really productive for them. It, it is a concern. I it's strange that Wagner hasn't had a test match mm. yet. He's such an effective bowler at what he does. Uh, adds more variety. Left arm, the, the kind of short-pitched attack. Um, I'm sure we'll see him at Headingley. But it feels like New Zealand have made quite a lot of mistakes in this series, uncharacteristically so. Um, I thought yesterday, I mean, the way Bester and Stokes were playing, perhaps there wasn't much you could have done, but they, I thought they missed... Williamson's calm head there to kind of Latham looks a little bit like things got out of hand too quickly persisted with Bracewell when and that attack legs I attack when best I was just launching him into stands repeatedly um I've, I've got a question for you Joe um that Ben Gardner who's seated over there he 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 came out with yesterday did one of his quick info deep dives uh Mitchell Daryl Mitchell made 250 odd runs in the test match which is the 10th highest aggregate of runs made in a losing cause in a test match right i'm not asking for an answer now uh who who's top of that list answer by the end of the podcast most runs in a test match that they lost yeah most lara? individual runs lara which game uh colombo very good joe that is, that is excellent very That's good over good. 300 runs in the game a double and, and a ton I sense we're about to end the test match section of the podcast and I don't know if we've actually mentioned Joe Root who made 170 Yeah, we odds. talked about this last week that uh, he, just, he does he it so regularly. Runs, just so. come yeah. back to number one in the test rankings as well. He's quite good. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah he, again, he, he gave a couple of chances early on. Stick the boot in. <laughs> Get rid of him. Got a tight enough, hasn't um, he? Yeah. <laughs> and also, crucially, he's failed that final day which made so, it all the more impressive. So didn't we'll it? get 150 yeah. next week. At, <laughs> he at dropped Henning. Mitchell when he was on five, so I think it's actually a negative run for well, the game. Both, if you both, that way. Both, both Root and Mitchell had really bad games if you take away their hundreds. <laughs> the big news this morning, by the way, was that England have been 
docked a couple of points for slow over eight. So they get 12 points to win and they lose two of them for, for, for getting through their overs. Like not that, bowling that enough is, Joe Root. I was, that is a mental discrepancy, <laughs> isn't it? I was thinking that the crowd really didn't get the value for money in that test match. Yeah, Especially this crowds on day five, you didn't pay anything. Yeah, so I mean, they were really short change. Everybody yeah. said it, but fair play to Knotts. Absolutely. Outstanding work on Absolutely. their part to make that final day free. Absolutely. Away away from the test match, I guess it's loosely related to it. US media giant Walt Disney and India's Reliance Industries have won the broadcasting rights to the IPL for more than six billion US dollars, making it one of the most lucrative sport leagues in the world in terms of cost per game, more so than the Premier League, which I couldn't quite believe. So an IPL match is billed in rights value ahead of the Premier League. The Premier League's eleven point eight million US dollars per game, according to India media. It's already been reported that the IPLs will be slightly, but not that much longer from next season. It'll be two and a half months rather than two months. Um, but Phil, if there's this, if there's so much money in this one competition, we've talked about the economics of cricket recently, and there's so little money in the rest of the game, the IPL, you just, you just can't see it just being two and a half months long when there's so much more money to be made. No, exactly. 74 matches for the next five years is a lot. Uh, it's not going to diminish. Um, there's two ways of looking at the economic side of it. One, it's bringing obscene amounts of money into the overall ecosystem of the game, which, with the right uh, philosophy held by those in positions of power, can can mean good things for the game if the money is replenished and spread uh, and dispersed around areas of the game that need it. Uh, the other flip side, of course, is that the hyper-capitalist nature of a deal such as this will, sent, will, will kind of funnel that money all the way to the top of the, of the BCCI and this extraordinary uh, phenomenon that is the IPL. It will, by baseline economics, double... If, if the, the TV rights are doubled, then presumably players' salaries are doubled. So then you're getting into a level where you're literally paying individual cricketers three million, the best, three million US dollars per tournament because they're already shifting one and a half as it stands. So if we're getting to the point of imagining what the, the first three million dollar contract is, for a, for a cricketer for six weeks' work or seven or eight weeks' work or probably in the end nine, ten, eleven, twelve weeks' work, then <laughs> what that means for the, the the overall lay of the land as it stands is is sort of terrifying, I would say. There's already, of course, that natural magnetic pull for a young cricketer towards short-form cricket. Uh if the money gets to that sort of level, as it will, as it has to, these are these are the na- these, these are the rules of of capitalism. Then, where does it leave the things that we we cherish and love? It's, yeah, how it, many fast it, it, bowlers it is, are going to put their body on the line in Test cricket if that's the kind of sums no, they're knowing after? that they could be conked out by twenty seven with four stress fractures, and therefore you lose all of that earning potential. And, of course, you lose all of that fun as well. Uh, so, look, it's been a great week for cricket, great week for Test cricket, for sure. And in the end, I still believe that the players have their eye not just on their bank balance, but on their legacy. I still believe that. And I still think that that 
remains the most persuasive case for the status quo to be maintained. But those numbers are jaw-dropping. Uh, and, yeah, I do shudder to think what it means in the long term. Mm. Um, there's been plenty of other international and domestic cricket that's worth talking about. Uh, but we won't have enough time to do that on this show. We've got another show before the third test match, so we'll talk about it then. Um, but before the next episode, England would have played some ODIs against the Netherlands, Ben. What are England going to learn? I think they're, hopefully, you'd hope they'd have some fun and learn a bit about the, the local culture and delicacies in... Uh, the, the, the press <laughs> corps. The press corps are oddly enthused about this trip. I can't understand that. No, I can't get my head around think why. They're lining up to get their accreditation <laughs> over the line. Um, but yeah, I mean, I wonder what the, the per match amount you charge for this series would be on those on the rights deals. Uh, but yeah, what what can they learn? I mean, it will be interesting to see how Owen Morgan goes. I mean, this he should see this as a chance to get back into form. He's also struggled with his fitness. It'll be interesting to see if he can get. Sorry, I've said interesting a couple of times there, Phil. You're going to hit me after the podcast. Uh, uh, we should see if he can get through a three-match series. If he can play all those games, that's a question England will want to know ahead of a World Cup, where you know games can come thick and fast towards the end of it, and then his own form as well. And then there's the question of life after Morgan, and they have a few players sitting out, which means they've got a few more fringe players just put a bit further up. I think Livingston looks like the sort of anointed successor, but you know he doesn't have a a, a statement innings in in ODI cricket yet uh, and also none of them have really played very much 50 over cricket it'll be interesting to see if you can actually still be a very good 50 over side without any of your players actually playing it because of them playing the 100 and you know everything else at the time when England's competition goes on so I, you think, know, I think they'll be okay yeah they should, it, I, I think they'll yeah, be okay they, on that score they might be alright yeah I think Netherlands are, are further away from their first choice team than England are yeah well that that's I mean something needs to be done about that there is supposed to be a rule the IC have for taught for Super is one of these tournaments where domestic teams are supposed to be obliged to release players for them. In practice, it doesn't happen. There are lots of players who will be Dutch players who will be playing county cricket uh, who would be in the Netherlands first choice team. And that is kind of a compromise they have to reach, but it also does just diminish this series. And if, you know, teams like the Netherlands can't afford to have four or five players missing out, that is a real shame. Mm. Um, Joe, there's a new issue of Wisden Cricket Monthly coming out today, tomorrow. Uh, it's uh, out on Thursday, but available to buy already on wisdom.com. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what are the highlights? Uh, the cover story is a exclusive interview of James Anderson with a kind of bit of a difference. It's done by Felix White. He's obviously been uh, kind of part of the mag for, for a long time. He's a mate of Jimmy's co-host on the Tailenders podcast, the second best cricket podcast around. And uh, he's done it really nicely. So it's actually a two-part interview. He spoke to him on the eve of the Lord's Test. And then he spoke to him again the day after the Lord's Test. Uh, it's a fascinating look at Anderson's last few months, which has obviously been quite difficult. Um, the, the thing that really stood out for me is Anderson's kind of joy of bowling still. The, the, the skill of it still really, really gets him going. And that was part of the, the sort of strain and stress of, of being dropped by England and thought of not being able to do that again uh particularly getting him around the lord's test and what that means he says like you'll just never recreate that feeling ever again in your life so he's got to kind of drink it up whilst he can but these felix is is a really really good interviewer um he asks questions that we probably wouldn't as you know more traditional cricket journalists the extent that i sent him a long list of questions didn't ask any of them at all um but he gets different answers as a result as well and his relationship with jimmy 
I think means you can delve into things a bit more easily than we might. Jimmy's probably a bit more open, <laughs> to be honest, to, to talking to him. Um, so that is definitely worth checking out. It's a, it's a really interesting piece, a bit of a a bit of an interview with a difference, I would say, to to, to the usual stuff. And a front cover with a difference. A very very lovely front cover as well. So check that out. It'll be on social media. Whatever Felix says, it's it's a it's a stunner of a front cover. <laughs> um, we've got uh, a kind of two part feature on. Yorkshire batting and Durham bowling uh, off the back of Harry Brook being on the verge of a test debut and obviously Matt Potts of Durham making his making his test bow a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's it's kind of about those players, but where they've come from, the traditions that have set up Yorkshire batting and Durham bowling obviously have provided England with so many fantastic players over the years. How does that happen? And is that tradition still continuing, particularly in the case of Yorkshire batting, which as batting, I spoke to Boycott and, and Vaughan, about the traditions and how they've changed and how Harry Brook fits into that, um, which was interesting to chat to both of them. We've got uh, Jim Wallace did a very lovely interview with with Jeremy Coney, which was predictably uh, <laughs> gushing, <laughs> gushing, gushing. But some beautiful stories in there. Always an interesting man to speak to. Um, we've got all the county cricket as ever. Phil, you spoke to Jack Haynes, didn't you, Worcestershire? I did actually. What a lovely lad and what a fine player. And he's doing extremely well. He's what, 350 in his last four games? Three Champo hundreds in a row. Runs in the T20 as well. Looks good. Looks like a, pro- a player. Only 21. Yeah, 21. Very polite. A little bit nervy. Um, it occurred to me that I'm twice his age. I used to speak to these, these people on some kind of vague level. Playing field no longer. Uh, but yeah, lovely lad. The kind of kind of cricket, homegrown cricket that you really back and you really want to go well. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's a really really good magazine. It was an absolute bastard to pull together. The test match came. The Lord's test match came at a tricky time. A uh, few things came our way. A few things didn't. Obviously, we had to get the Felix Jimmy thing over the line. It was sometimes with these things they they fall into place very natu- very nicely and other times you just got to wrestle with them to get to the end point but we did that that said we? if England hadn't won at Lords, it would have made it even trickier <laughs> uh, to, to pull together the Anderson thing and and we've seen again Anderson's bowled we, we, uh, we literally hadn't mentioned him in the whole podcast yes. have we um, but he's bowled beautifully this summer and any concerns that you know as he's still got it I think we can lay those fears for the time mm. being um, the 92 series was in Wacker series Dan Brigham uh, he's a fine writer he went when revisited that series that came out really nicely uh, i've done something on the parlous state of uh, cricket in state schools which is no great news but again to speak to people on the front line and how all the pieces matter how that influences and affects uh, the pathway system at counties we spoke about glamorgan a few weeks ago on the show um i went and spoke to various other counties as well and i pulled that together Quite early by my standards, about half past 11 on the day we went to print, I actually pulled that together and sent it on to Joe. Got an uh, apology. I've never had an apology before, yeah. I don't think. There's late and then there's late. There was a, on the day that the magazine went to print. to pull together. On the day the magazine went, uh, went to print, Phil stocked the fridge up well in anticipation of, 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 a, of a well-earned drink at the end of the day. Yeah, drink responsibly, kids, but I was drunk from half past four on the Wednesday <laughs> until well into that weekend superb i think on that note uh, that's that's all for today cheers ben cheers joe cheers phil this has been the wisdom cricket weekly podcast we'll be back next week for the third Christmas.
Social Podcast Network.